And now it's time for the Wild Side News with your host, Sidney Wildsmith. It all happens so fast. You're out with your friends on a weekend retreat. It's a beautiful afternoon. Spring flowers are beginning to shoot up in the forest. You've got your new field guide, and it's a perfect opportunity to identify a few new flowers. You wander off with your book in hand, sit down with some new species, and then you notice clouds moving in. It's getting colder. You didn't bring a jacket. So you pick up your book and head back. After an hour, you realize you're lost. Today, it's a lesson in survival. When your voice of the earth continues, here on the Wild Side News. Wildside News. And now, Sidney Wildsmith. It happens every year. The story of a young hiker who wanders away from a family get-together in a park, and then the terrible feeling that something's gone wrong. The hiker has been gone far too long. There just may be no worse feeling than to sense that someone you love and care about has gone missing. When it happens on a trip to the back country, the fears multiply. And to a large extent, the attempts to locate the lost hiker increase in rugged and varied terrain. So many things can go wrong. This past week, we've been following the story of a 12-year-old scout who was lost for four days in the mountains of North Carolina. Quickly, National Park Rangers mounted a search and were assisted by various professional and volunteer search and rescue teams, including the canine trackers. Finally, Gandalf, a two-year-old retriever on his first search and rescue mission, bobbed his head three times, and across the river. There was 12-year-old Michael Aubrey, dehydrated and hungry, but otherwise all right. Today we bring you wise counsel on what you need to know if you should ever find yourself lost. It's a lesson in survival. Most of us live with a sense that it can't happen to us, that we are smart enough and savvy enough to keep our lives in order, and that's a good thing. But as we all know as well, sometimes things get skewed, sometimes they don't go as planned, and we find ourselves confronted with the realization that we now need to do the right thing to survive. I hope each of you has gotten far enough away into the wild and have had that moment when you feel, even if just for a split second, that you've lost your bearings. We take the next two segments to tell you what you need to know with a lesson in survival. Stay tuned.
Oftentimes in the news, when we hear of a particular event that captures the attention of the the nation and sometimes the world, it's a great time to uh, to use that as a moment for learning. And certainly the story of a young 12-year-old uh, Boy Scout who was off with his family and friends in a church group uh, in North Carolina in the mountains uh, and for various reasons wandered away and then was lost for four days. It's a great time to really think about uh, what that means. Uh, he was very fortunate. He was found alive. But if it weren't for groups like Search and Rescue, which are scattered all around the country, uh, there's a chance that he may not have made it back. The Search and Rescue uh, provides terrific service at times like this of extremely dedicated people and their dogs and friends and associates. The Search and Rescue workers have saved many, many probably thousands of lives throughout their history. Well, now joining us to talk about what Search and Rescue does and also what people need to know if they find themselves in this situation is Howard Paul, who is uh, uh, joining us now from Colorado. Howard, welcome to the Wild Side News. Thank you very much. First of all, let's talk about um, the group that you're, you're representing today, the National Association of Search and Rescue. NASAR has been around since the 1970s. And it is, if you will, the professional association for people in the field uh, from across the nation and from other countries as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, how about a website so the people who want to may be able to follow along as you talk? Certainly. That's www.nasar.org. Very simple. Now, you're the president as well of the Colorado Search and Rescue Organization. Uh, How long have you been involved in Search and Rescue? I became involved myself here in Colorado in Search and Rescue back in 1985. Seems like quite a long time ago. What brought you to it? It was interesting. Uh, I had uh, been recruited to join a team and declined, didn't really see any interest in it. But a few years later, decided uh, to take their that same team's training class in order to become um, a little more self-sufficient, be able to take care of myself when I was back uh, skiing, hiking, that sort of thing. And it just sort of got in my blood and, and stuck. Mm-hmm. Well, it does take a lot of training and coordination to effectively administer a, a search and rescue experience. What do people have to know before they head out on these challenges to locate someone who literally their lives are on the line? Well, it's going to vary somewhat from from region to region, and, and that, that typically would, would depend upon the weather and the topography. For example, the Adirondack Mountains, will require different skills than the deserts of New Mexico, which require different skills than the high alpine peaks of Colorado or Washington. But typically, um, the person that, that does uh, does the best in search and rescue is someone that's very outdoors-oriented uh, themselves. And that could just be from a recreational start, someone that's a, a hiker, a backpacker, a camper, a backcountry skier, or a climber, something along those lines. Uh, most organizations have training programs of their own that they'll put you through. The National Association for Search and Rescue has training curricula that have been created by committee over the years and can lead to certifications that many teams or county sheriffs will use to ensure that all of their folks are properly trained. Now, in your time working uh, actually on search and rescue operations, uh, how often are you called out? That can vary greatly as well. There are some uh, areas where a team might have 10 or 12 calls a year. There are others that might have more than uh, 100 calls a year. And that depends greatly um, just upon the size of the community, 
the location um, are a lot of tourists drawn into that community during the summertime? Is it a big draw for winter recreationalists? Uh, smaller rural or even frontier counties might be in that 10 to 12 category. If you're in an area that is extraordinarily popular for hikers or perhaps for technical climbers, such as Yosemite or the climbing areas outside Boulder, Colorado, you can be well up into the 100s a year. Mm -hmm. And I think most of the people who are involved really are doing this on a voluntary basis. That's true. Most of the professionals providing that service, search and rescue across the nation, about 90% of them, are what we call unpaid professionals. They're giving of their time at, at no cost to anyone. Well, it's an extraordinary service that you render. Let's talk about what are kind of the, the, the common ways in which people find themselves in need of your services. Well, I think there, there are a couple of different things. Um, one is perhaps just not quite paying attention as well as they should. And the second thing that's sort of related to that as well is even when you're paying attention, it is um, extremely easy to miss a trail junction or miss a trail sign. Literally, if you, you, could, you could be walking down a trail, approaching a trail junction, and something will distract you, perhaps uh, the noise of an animal, even just a bird chirping off to one side. You look to the side as you're walking, and you've missed the trail junction because it's not very clear. You can't quite tell that you should have taken a switch back to the right. There's a little bit of a lesser trail leading straight on, and it's before you realize it, you're off the trail completely. Well, and of course, if you're following some sort of topo map or some other map, it's extremely easy, as you say, to miss a fork uh, because they may not be marked, and then all of a sudden you find yourself basically on the map somewhere, but you really have lost your orientation, and it's at a time like that, you may not know where you are on that map is where well, the trouble that, begins. That's very true. Um, it, it can be a sudden realization or it can be sort of a creeping realization that something doesn't seem right or, you know, the stream I thought was going to be on my left and now it's on the right. Something's wrong. Right. Either land is wrong, the map is wrong, or I'm wrong. Right. Odds are I'm wrong, not the land wrong or the map being wrong. Unless you have some sort of GPS device and you know how to use it, that's where difficulties really begin. And that's that, very true. Mm -hmm. And, you know, modern technology does a lot of things. But I caution everyone to not use uh, modern technology as, your, as sort of your, your sole tool to get you through. Um, such things as GPS receivers and cell phones are notorious for failing at the wrong moment mm. or not working out in the backcountry, especially cell phones. That's a really good point, by the way. If you're at high altitudes such as Colorado or, or California or, or anywhere where you're at terrain above most of the population, you may be in an area where your cell phone cannot tie into the cell phone system and you can't get a signal. I hadn't even thought about that, really, but I think there's a lot of people that go out and say, well, that's okay, I've got my cell phone, but you're right. Yeah. <laughs> By the time you think you need it, it's not there. You're That's in a right. dead zone. And, yeah. and, and boy, panic can set in quickly mm -hmm. if uh, cell phones are not available. You talked about not paying attention. Talk about that because that's a really great point, too, that people oftentimes find themselves in these situations because they're not paying attention. What does that mean to pay attention? Well, uh, what does it mean to pay attention? Uh, think ahead. 
keep a, a, a map in your head of, of what your intended path is. It doesn't have to be specific. It can be general, as in I'm walking upstream, up this valley, and tending to climb to the left, which will put me on a ridge where I can see my destination. That destination might be a fire lookout tower. That destination might be a, a shelter hut along the trail, for example, on the Appalachian Trail. It could be a lake that I'm then going to descend to to go fishing. Keeping that in mind, if things don't seem to match what you have in your head, that should be a pretty good clue that perhaps you and the lay of the land aren't quite matched up. When we talked about, about hiking on trails, obviously keeping an eye on a trail, and keeping in mind that trails sometimes for short distances will get overgrown or they might just peter out, you have to look ahead and see where that trail picks up again. The other thing, too, is is just a general general paying attention of your surroundings. And I'll give you a, a, an interesting but short story about the one of the two times I was lost on a search mission. Now, I'll tell you, I wasn't lost for very long. The first time was for maybe 30 seconds. The second time was maybe for five minutes. But that first time, we had been on a search assignment. It was a team of three or four of us. We had been traversing a, uh, a, a hillside all morning. Lunchtime came. We decided it was time to stop and take a break, have some lunch, put on some clean socks. And we all sat down and we were eating. And after just a few minutes, we decided it's time to get up and continue our assignment. We all stood up. And we all looked around 360 degrees and had no idea which direction we had come from. Wow. And we're the trained searchers. Now, it didn't take long to figure it out. We quickly pinpointed ourselves on the map. And this was in the days before GPS. But using the map, using the compass, we could tell exactly where we were. But it was literally just that few minutes of not paying attention. We came in. We decided we are going to take a break. So we switched off our brains. We sat down, relaxed. And then when it was time, we stood up. We switched on our brains, and nothing, ma- nothing matched up. So we, technically speaking, we were lost. But we mm-hmm. found ourselves pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So it's that simple. I know one of the practices that I use all the time, it's some of the best advice I ever learned, I don't know who taught it to me, but that is when you're walking frequently, turn around and look backwards. So that you, you see the lay of land from the perspective that you're going to have to know it if you have to, get ba- if you have to go backwards, <laughs> as you have to go home, okay, or retrace your trail. That's very, very true. Um, not only for uh, folks that are, that are uh, hiking that haven't become lost, we teach that in Search and Rescue, that when we're searching for people to constantly look behind you, look above, look to the left, look to the right. Um, It's not unheard of that a searcher will have walked past someone or walked past a significant clue, which might be a hat that we have determined belongs to the person we're looking for. Mm -hmm. That's a very significant clue. We found their hat. They've got to be in this area. But if they had not turned back, they wouldn't have seen it because approaching it because of the lay of the land, maybe some shading by trees, the direction of the sun, they wouldn't have seen it until they turned around when they were past it. And that really leads me to a good topic about how to not get lost, if, especially if you're a child like this 12-year-old scout. Well, go ahead. Why don't we talk about that? Certainly. There's a great national program called Hug a Tree and Survive which is sponsored by the National Association for Search and Rescue that we've been teaching since the late 1970s. It came out of Southern California after a 
boy went missing and was not found for several days and was found uh, he had passed away. He had died, I believe, of hypothermia. And that shook uh, quite a few of the people that were involved quite a bit. And it led to a gentleman named Ab Taylor, who was then a tracker with the Border Patrol, to help set up this program called Hug a Tree and Survive. And it teaches very simple core topics to young kids as young as kindergarten or even even younger. It teaches kids to do things such as stay on the trail. It also teaches kids, as you just mentioned, to look behind and recognize a landmark. In the program, in the photographs, in the slides that we use, we show a young boy on the trail. We show him looking over his shoulder and seeing a big mountain that's plainly visible back up the trail, which he could used to return to the trailhead where the camper is if he had thought to turn around and look behind him. It's amazing because there's two different worlds. There's the world you're going to and the world you're coming from, you just came from. And they're two totally different visions. Two different visions, and most people are clued in 99.9% on the world you're going to. Mm -hmm. They don't think about the world you've come from. It's Mm -hmm. a great way to put it. Mm -hmm. The other things that that program teaches and this is valuable for adults as well, although with kids, obviously, we use language that's, that's keyed into them. Two things are of greatest importance. The number one is hug a tree. We teach kids to hug a tree specifically to keep them in one spot, to stop them from moving. It's much harder to find a moving target. The worst example could be this. Little boy, little girl gets lost. She hugs, he hugs his tree for a while. Search teams are out looking. The little child decides to want to move on in hopes of finding someone, finding help. They don't even realize someone's looking for them, perhaps, other than their family. So they leave their tree and they, they move on. Guess what happens? After they leave their tree, the search team walks right past where that child had been. And the child has now walked into an area that has already been searched earlier that same day and might not be researched for two or three days. So that's why we want everyone, young child, even adults, stay put, let searchers come to you. And to help those searchers come to you, we want you, if you're lost, to do some things to attract them to you. For the little kids in Huggetry, we call that making yourself big. But the principles are the same with an adult. Make noise. You want to have bright colors. Obviously, if you're wearing a bright colored jacket or hat or gloves, they're going to be seen from a much greater distance than someone that's wearing blue jeans and a khaki shirt or an olive drab hat, which blends in nicely. Um, the One of the things that we, we teach every little kid is to carry a whistle around their neck because it can carry, the sound carries so much farther, uh, especially at night. And yes, we do search at night. Uh, many people don't understand that we do. Um, search is an emergency. We've got to find someone before they have the opportunity to travel too far. So we do search at night. As a matter of fact, uh, the, as far as my team is concerned, the majority of our searches start at night. We get that phone call for someone that hasn't returned at 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night. And we're out in the dark searching. There's an advantage. That sound carries better in the dark. I don't know why, but mm. it does. 
it's very advantageous. Hmm. Maybe there's less ambient noise from creatures and different things. Or maybe the yeah, that's, I've had, I'll have to give that some thought. <laughs> that's fascinating. Here's a question: What you do is very much dependent on what you have with you. If you have nothing, I'd like to kind of approach this from two perspectives. One is if you find yourself uh, lost and you have, let's say, the, a, a minimum of gear. You have maybe matches. You have. Uh, or a lighter, uh, you have some sort of, uh, pr- you know, protective clothing, uh, maybe you have um, a flashlight or something. So you you have at least some protection. And the other would be if you find yourself with nothing. Because there's, for example, if you have a tent, you could just hunker in and say, I'm going to stay right here and, and uh, until someone finds me, because eventually they will. For very likely they would. But if you don't have anything, then you have other concerns, which has to do with your own survival. Why don't you help us understand the difference, uh, differences there, uh, or maybe there aren't that many differences? Well, there are. Um, I think the first thing to understand is once you, you realize you're lost, and whether that's that sudden realization or that creeping realization, there's an acronym, STOP, which stands for literally stop, think, observe, and plan. By following the, that acronym, it, it, it can sort of focus your mind, prevent panic from creeping in, which is the worst thing that can happen because then you're going to make serious bad decisions that can complicate things. You've got to stop. You've got to think, which way did I come from? Which way was the trail supposed to have gone? You've got to observe. Which, which way, you know, given the time of day, where's the sun? Which is going to give you an idea of... Which direction is which? You know, in the summertime at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, you know the sun's going to be over in the west to southwest side. After observing your situation, which includes where you are situated physically, you know, are you on a ridgetop, are you in a valley floor, are are you next to flowing water, you've got to then plan. You've got to plan how you're going to take care of yourself for the next several hours or perhaps a day or two. If you've got some minimal things with you, they're going to make your grand adventure a lot more, uh, I suppose, comfortable is a good, is a good name. Um, there's something that in Search and Rescue and, and in the Mountaineering Club, the Appalachian Mountain Club, the Colorado Mountain Club, the Mountaineers have all talked about for many years, and it's called the Ten Essentials. And that's the Ten minimum things you should carry whenever you go into the backcountry. And that that could be for a day hike. It could be for a one-hour mountain bike ride. It doesn't matter. Anytime you're away from immediate help, you want to have these things with you so that when you twist an ankle, whether hiking, whether you're on a mountain bike, whether you're skiing, but you're several miles in and, and, and you cannot get out because you can't walk, you've got to have these things to take care of you. And I'll run through them real quickly. Sure. Those ten essentials are obviously, perhaps not obviously, a first aid kit. That's something you really need to know how to use the stuff in it before the emergency hits. If you're in a semi-panic mindset, it's going to be very difficult to use that first aid kit. A map and a compass. And I'd say a map and a compass, and I include that in addition to a, perhaps a GPS that you might be carrying. Again, if you're in, in um, sick uh, vegetation, the radio signal might not be able to penetrate. You may not be able to get a signal, especially if you've got one of the slightly older GPSs that do not have a map in it. All it gives you is a 
a digital readout, perhaps an arrow for direction of travel. There's no map that you can follow on it. A pocket knife, a multi, you know, that's a multi-purpose tool that can be used for lots of different things. Matches and a fire starter, waterproof matches and a fire starter. Fire starter could be something that you build from scratch, or it could be a little uh, little stick that you buy in a camping store that, that burns and you light it. Some sort of a uh, impromptu shelter. And that can be something as simple as a very large garbage bag or a tube tent or a space blanket. A flashlight for when it gets dark, and it's going to get dark. Um, emergency clothing for both the temperature and rain. That's going to vary greatly um, in your climate. Here in Colorado, you don't have to worry about rain too much. As a matter of fact, we never get enough rain. But in the eastern part of the country, it's going to rain. In the desert southwest, it's not going to rain, but it's still going to get darn cold at night. So you've got to have some warm clothing. Include along with that some emergency food and some emergency water. When I'm teaching kids these 10 essentials, I tell them emergency food is the stuff that's left over after you, after you gobbled up everything you already wanted to eat during the day. So make it something that maybe isn't that great to taste. If your emergency food is nothing but Snickers bars, kids are going to eat them through the day. They'll have nothing left. Folks in search and rescue teams, they carry emergency food. Some of that stuff's been in their pack for a couple of years. They've got to be really hungry to eat something that's been in their pack drying out for two years. Uh, the last thing is really important at altitude when you're talking about snow and that sunglasses so that you don't get your eyes sunburned. And actually there's an 11th essential that I learned from a 6th grader when I was teaching this class several years ago at an elementary school here in Evergreen, Colorado. And he said, the most important of the ten essentials is a companion. And I kind of slapped my head and thought, boy, that's absolutely remarkably smart thinking. It's the old two heads are better than one. If I get in trouble, there's someone there to help me out. All if good. you're not carrying the ten essentials, you can still get through this situation. It's not going to be quite as comfortable. The important things are, again, you've got to stop, and you've got to stop early. Because you may have to find or build an impromptu shelter. And you want to do that before it's dark. Moving around in the dark in unfamiliar terrain, you may not be able to find or build shelter. And obviously, unless there's a pretty good moon, um, you may not be able to see where you're going. The least risk is, is uh, sliding on a wet log and tripping an ankle. The worst risk is falling over the brink of something. Um, and injuring yourself. And I don't mean falling over a thousand foot cliff. I mean falling over maybe an eight foot cliff. If anybody's been out in the, in the woods, when it's pitch black, you cannot see anything. You Absolutely can't see, nothing. you can't see a, a, a stick two inches in front of your face. There's, there's nothing. You're really extremely vol. It's scary. It's a scary situation. I've been in those situations just kind of walking back after a hike through areas that I've been familiar with, but found myself in a pitch black night. And I'm telling you, that is a, a, a most unusual reality. It really, really is. And it's there's nothing quite that dark, is there? No, that's well. You literally feel your way every inch, you know. So the the problem there is that such an increased uh, capacity for in, injuring yourself. And I know, for example, when I'm camping, I never like to put up after dark. Never. 
I always make every effort to be sure, even when I'm, you know, when I'm have my tents and my gear, to get in before dark and get that tent set up because you just have so much greater opportunity to do it right. Absolutely. When you when you don't when you when you're forced to to make camp in the in the dark, um, you're always surprised in the morning. <laughs> Yeah, that's yes. the spot you picked, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, exactly. Oh, how in the world could I, could I put this thing here? Yeah. We've covered some background and the 11 essentials, but there's more to this story. Next, we explore your options when you face the unknowns of being lost. As we continue this lesson in survival, when your voice of the earth continues, here on the Wild Side News. Welcome back to the Wild Side News. And now, Sydney Wildsmith. A lesson in survival continues. What you need to do depends on what you have to do to do what needs to be done. What do you do if you find yourself lost with just the clothes on your back? Do you find yourself out of sync with your topo map as nightfall sets in? Are you geared up with provisions and gear? What you have to do has so many variables. Stop. Don't panic. Do the right thing. We'll be right back. We now continue with our lesson in survival with Howard Paul, president of Colorado Search and Rescue. Stick with us now as the information you're about to hear may save your life. Well, though this this uh, young boy was out there for 4 days, apparently he had uh, wa- he had wandered off on his own a little bit and got homesick. This is what I'm hearing now and uh, decided to hitchhike back to his town. That's what I couldn't figure out how he's hitchhiking back to his, his but not his family, but his town and his friends. Okay, and that's where he got into trouble. And then I've also just recently read that he uh, did not follow your advice, and that is the fact that he kept wandering around. Talk about the importance of of really making almost like a base camp. Isn't that really the best thing to do? It really is. Um, as long as someone knows where you are, you know, your general area. You've told someone where you're going. You've told someone when you're to be expected back. If you don't uh, turn back up, someone's going to report you missing. Someone's going to be looking for you. So, again, it's important to to help the searchers by remaining in either entirely stationary or in a, a very small area, again, so that you're not a moving target, which is hard to find, and you don't leave an area that's about to be searched and walk into an area that has already been searched. Now, again, with, with small kids, we talk about teaching them to hug a tree. A tree could be your friend. We, in searching for lost folks, use all sorts of different techniques. The obvious one is, is people on the ground, walking, listening, calling out, and looking for clues. The clues can be footprints, could be a piece of clothing, it could be a glint of color or a reflection off in the distance. These are all clues that are going to lead us to the lost person. 
we're actually not looking for the lost person. We're looking for the clues that lead us to the lost person. Do you ever teach people to actually leave some sort of clue if they th- now you don't do this if you're just hiking because that then you're destroying the natural environment which you, which you certainly don't want to do but if you find yourself in a situation where where you feel that you're lost uh what are some ways that a person can actually leave those clues what what, what would you advise well i've seen folks that have actually written a note and left it on a trail with their name and an, and a uh, uh some sort of uh, a message I've, uh, I uh, was uh, involved in a search many years ago where a lost gentleman who was out racing us, he was moving so fast, he took the uh, uh, peel from his orange that he had eaten and with something had drawn an arrow on it on the inside of the orange and left it at a trail junction. Great his idea. Initials and said, I'm going this way. Great idea. Yeah. When I talk about clues, we're, we're looking, we're, I, I, I don't mean things that, that you necessarily specifically leave behind, but things that you might leave behind without realizing it. You know, people do drop wrappers from candy or granola bars. That's a great clue. But it may be something that you have inadvertently left. Could be a hat, could be a glove, something that's fallen off your pack. That's why when we interview the folks that have reported you missing, we do a very exhaustive interview as to what you're carrying, what are you likely to be carrying, what colors of clothing and equipment are you carrying, so if we come across something on the trail, we can quickly determine if that likely belonged to you or not. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, as I mentioned before, in assisting us to find you, even if you're going to hug your tree, whether you're a child or an adult staying in one area, it's best if you can pick a tree or pick a spot to remain in that's near a clearing so that if you hear an aircraft, especially a helicopter, you can go out into that clearing and you'll be much easier to see. When we teach the kids this concept, we teach them to go out into the clearing and lay down almost like they're making snow angels because they're a bigger target to see from the air and if they were standing up and all we can see is their head and their shoulders. That gets back to making yourself big. You know, the other thing is if you've got objects of color, and that could be, you know, almost anything. It could be a, a piece of paper, a piece of fabric, a wrapper from food. If you can hang those in a tree in a circle around your general area and within you know, distance that you can see easily. Again, those are out-of-the-ordinary objects that are going to catch the eye of a searcher. They're not going to catch the eye of someone in a helicopter because they're too high and they're moving too fast. They're essentially looking for spots of color. But a searcher on the ground, something in a tree is extraordinarily unusual, unnatural, and that they're going to catch that in their eye and investigate it immediately. Now, in this particular case with the boy in North Carolina, um, this is and this apparently is a fairly common thing, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about hypothermia because that is a very serious problem. But uh, apparently uh, when he was discovered, and, and I'd also like you to touch on uh, the role of search and rescue dogs and how we can help them find you, you know, uh, they were calling out and he didn't respond. Which, if for some, you may, you you know more more about that than I do, but that seems to be somewhat of a common experience. Well, that's true. 
there are, there are a couple of reasons that, that a youngster might not respond. You mentioned hypothermia for, for one. Hypothermia, by definition, is your body is losing heat faster than it can create heat. And that can be caused by it's either extremely cold and wet or, on the other side of that equation, your body has run out of fuel and it can no longer create heat by shivering, for example, because your your reserves of sugar are so low. So it's either you you have not enough fuel to warm up or you can't make up the heat that you've already lost because of the out the, the outdoors, the surroundings around you. And cold is exa- is exacerbated. It's made so much worse by, by moisture. One of the worst things you can get caught in when it starts to rain are jeans or anything else that's cotton. We call it, in Search and Rescue for years, we've been talking about killer cotton because when it gets wet, it just sucks the heat and energy right out of you. You cannot reproduce that heat fast enough. When the body starts to cool down because of hypothermia, and by the way, very vigorous shivering is not necessarily a sign of of extreme danger. That's your body using its fuel to try and reheat itself back up. It's a very good warning sign that you probably need some help in warming back up, but it's not a sign of, of, of terrible danger. But when the body starts to cool down, several things happen. And essentially, the the problem is that the brain is not functioning as it normally would. So it will not correctly control involuntary actions and even voluntary actions. Um, a, a real um, obvious sign is when someone starts to lose muscle coordination. And that can be something as simple as stumbling, not being able to walk as well as you normally would, um, maybe having difficulty in putting on mittens or gloves. You just, you're, you're losing that muscle coordination. The next thing is that you might start to have difficulty speaking. You might slur words. That's another sign. It's, there, there are three stages of hypothermia. We're talking now about getting into that moderate stage of hypothermia that really requires help from someone else, and that is in rewarming you and keeping you warm by putting on additional clothing. Rewarming you maybe by building a fire, giving you some additional fuel that you can burn to get that furnace going again and reheat from the inside and put on put on some extra warm and dry clothing. This time of the year is actually um, sometimes even considered worse than winter time for hypothermia, and summer can be as well. And most folks might be surprised by that. There's a reason why. People are prepared generally in the wintertime for cold weather. So they take that stuff along that they need. They take that extra clothing. In the spring and in the summer, they're not thinking cold, so they're more likely to be caught without the extra clothing when the wind kicks up and the rain starts, and suddenly now they're soaking wet and they're in a 10 or 15 mile an hour breeze and that convection cooling is just 
it's it's sucking the heat out of you faster than you can replace it. I'm getting uncomfortable thinking about that. I've been in those situations. <laughs> and uh, one of the things about hypothermia is the fact that it can, it can come on so quickly that, uh, you know, it, you don't even know what's happening. It doesn't take long to get, before you find yourself chilled, you get a little little wet, as you say, pers- possibly even from just perspiration. And then a cold or a cool breeze comes in, and the next thing you know, you know, you're starting to go into that zone. It doesn't take long to get there, does it? No, it doesn't take long at all. And the, the, the important thing to remember is when you go from that first stage hypothermia, which you'll recognize you're cold, but you probably aren't thinking hypothermia. When you go from that first minimum stage into that moderate stage, you're now having enough, your brain has decreased in its ability enough that you will not recognize it in yourself. And that's why we always tell people when you're in a, when you're in a group, is to keep an eye on each other because they will recognize it in you where you won't. They'll see that you're having muscle coordination problems. You're not, you're stumbling. You're having difficulty putting on mitt. You perhaps have, are having difficulty getting up after taking a lunch break. It's odd. I, I was uh, out uh, cross-country skiing with a couple of friends, a guy and his girlfriend, and uh, we got a little out ahead of her or something to that effect, and she just seemed to disappear. And uh, so at some point we thought, well, what's going on here? And we went back, and she was actually on the ground, and uh, she said, "Well, listen. Why don't you? I'm just taking a little rest here. Why don't you guys go on without me?" Well, obviously, she was in the she was in that mid stage there, yep. where, and you know she seemed sort of normal, except that it didn't make any sense. But this was just within about fifteen or twenty minutes, and uh, she was completely irrational in terms of of how she was thinking. You guys go on. I'll catch up with you, which was ridiculous. She was on the ground in the snow. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that, boy, if that's not a clue, nothing is. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked about the Boy Scout that was missing, and they did mention hypothermia. I'm not sure what the weather was back there, but it certainly was cool at night. That's why it's so important to find or improvise some kind of shelter. You want to be out of the wind. If there's any chance of moisture, rain, sleet, a quick hailstorm like we get here in the Rockies, it could only last 10 or 15 minutes, but it could be a real a, a real heavy storm that could just drench you. You want to be out of the rain, out of the wind. That means finding a shelter, which could be something as simple maybe as a, as a rock outcrop that's mm. going to protect you from above and from the wind. Or if you can't find something, you're going to have to improvise something, perhaps in the form of a lean-to or... Something like that. Now, here's a question. I've run across situations where people have managed to survive. You've done that many more times than I have. But, but where they're out, to, for example, in cold, uh, cold weather, with a minimum of of uh, gear and, and and no real protective clothing, and yet they manage for two or three days uh, in very cold situations. How are they doing that? What's the best way, if you find yourself in that situation, how can you literally protect yourself against that cold if you're not prepared? And you, don't, you can't do a fire, you know, but what, what in your environment uh, have you found or have you heard from people who have managed to survive works? Well, if you, if you don't have any of those 10 essentials, you're, you're, you're literally unprepared. It's going to be extremely difficult. The two things that you can do, again, are shelter, and create heat by exercise. Re- you've got to be able to keep that body warm, and the only way you can do that 
uh, without anything else is you've got to be able to create that heat internally. That could be as simple as walking, walking uphill. The problem, of course, now is that you're using fuel, which is limited, and at some point in time you're going to run out of fuel. Now, if the weather is good, it's not windy, which that convection cooling is going to cool you off. It's not wet. That's helpful. You can probably rewarm in the sunshine. That's if it's not a cloudy day like it is here in Denver today. Let's talk about that night when you got to go those long, 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 endless, cold, miserable, torturous nights that you have to endure. What's the best way to survive those? Well, you know, I've talked to folks and have heard stories from others that have survived those long, long, cold nights. Every single one of them seems to say the same thing. They just try and catch some sleep and that they'll get sleep in small chunks. Now, when you get sleep in small chunks, that's what makes that night seem like it's the longest night there ever has been on the planet. Those chunks are probably going to be in, you know, it might be 20 minutes of sleep here, 30 minutes there. And then you're going to wake up, and you're maybe going to shiver. Maybe some exercise is time now for exercise to rewarm yourself and then try and get some sleep some more. And then I think the rest of it is what I would call mental gymnastics is putting yourself in the right frame of mind and orienting your mindset towards survival, looking ahead to the morning as opposed to concentrating on your situation now or what got you into the situation. Looking forward is probably of a great benefit. I've spent some some of those situations where I've had an absolutely miserable night uh, and there's nothing like that first crack of dawn. <laughs> That's true. Oh, um, you feel well, a new, new day coming on, and there's hope again. That's very, very true. Sometimes those great camping trips can be miserable. Yes, absolutely. Well, listen, and then one one last thing. We could go on for, this is great, and I think it's very valuable, but also uh, the role of the search and rescue dogs. Uh, this In this particular case, the dog picked up the scent, and and it didn't take that dog all that, all that long to find this lost boy in North Carolina. What can you tell us about how to help the search and rescue dogs? Is, are there ways to help them as well as the teams find you? There are. The most important thing um, when it comes to uh, making it easier for a SAR dog, a search dog, to find you is if that dog and that dog's handler, they work together as a team, can have what we call a scent article. You know, a a search dog, any dog's uh, ability to, to, to smell is in the thousands of times more than us poor little humans. If there is a scent article, something that they can get your specific scent off of, they can then discriminate that scent from that of other people. It's amazing. A great scent article is something like a sock that's going to be saturated with scent. Any other piece of clothing is going to work well as well. It doesn't even have to be a piece of clothing. I've seen dogs where the handler has taken them to the missing person's car and scented them, gotten the dog to sniff the car seat, the floor, anywhere where scent will settle. Scent 
is actually very tiny cells that are constantly falling off your body and leaving this invisible trail behind. Hmm. So a dog can pick up that scent off clothing, it can pick it up off the car seat, it can pick it up off the ground around a car. For example, at the back of a car where someone might sit on a bumper to put on their boots or to grab their day pack before they head off. So if the dog handler has a scent article, it's going to speed things up. Now, without a scent article, dogs are still useful. They can still find human beings in a given area, but they might find other human beings there as well. So how the dogs are used depends on whether they have a scent article or not, who has been in the area previously, and that sort of thing. Dogs can find scent from uh, a great distance away. It all depends entirely upon the weather in that in that sense. Mm. Which way is the wind blowing? How warm or cool is it? Is it wet or is it dry? Um, I mentioned that, that the scent the dog is looking for are tiny cells that are constantly falling off of your skin. If the weather is warm and breezy, this isn't too hard to imagine, it's going to dry those cells out, and those cells are going to lose their scent. They're essentially going to die. Mm-hmm. If it's cool and slightly damp, that's going to keep the scent in those cells going longer. And if there's a slight breeze to kind of stir them up into the air, that's going to improve that dog's ability to catch that scent even more. Is there such a thing as leaving the scent trails, like rubbing the back of your neck or other places that may be sort of sweaty or whatever, and rubbing them on rocks or that type of thing? Might that be useful to kind of make these uh, scent tra- trails, uh, if, if you were thinking, you know, to try to leave your own scent trail, might that be useful, do you think? You know, it makes sense to me. And then for those people who have a fire, that really is an advantage, isn't it? Because you can actually, um, if, well, you have heat and other things, but what would be a way to help people locate that fire? Well, if you're talking about daylight, obviously it's got to be smoke. Mm -hmm. At night, the fire itself, of course, and making sure that the fire doesn't get so large that it can get out of hand and start a forest fire. I had a youngster ask me once if if we go in and fight forest fires, and I said, no, we're search and rescue. Mm -hmm. We go in when people are lost. If there's a forest fire, we run the other way with everybody else. Mm -hmm. But the way to use that fire to attract people during the day is to create smoke. Create smoke by putting wet vegetation on it, letting that thing billow up some smoke. It's going to do one of two things. Someone's going to see it and say, there's smoke over there. We need to go investigate it and see if that might be a clue leading us to our lost person who's standing by the fire. The other thing that could happen is someone's going to see that smoke and they're going to report it to the authorities who more than likely are going to call in the fire department to go in and investigate thinking that we might have a a wildfire going. And again, you've got people coming in to help. There's a great chance they're going to find you. This is such a fascinating topic, and I certainly want to encourage anyone who finds this at all interesting to to contact your organization. We're talking with Howard Paul, who's with NASAR. The National Association for Search and Rescue, and the web address is nasar.org, nasar.org. How long does it take to get uh, certified? Classes are that, that... are conducted by SAR teams can run anywhere from a few short weeks to many weeks. The NASAR uh, 
type of curriculum can, again, be a few short weeks or a, a, a several weeks long. It depends upon the, the way that the, the SAR teams use it. My particular SAR team here in Colorado does, it, does a training class one night a week for about eight or nine weeks and then follows that up with three or four full-day sessions out in the field on weekends. So you're talking a total of about one night a week for 12 weeks with three or four weekend days thrown in there as well. There are other teams that will do it in a more compact manner. There are other teams that will stretch it out over an entire year, sort of on-the-job training. Well, I can't think of a better way, really, if you're going to, if you like the outdoors, and you have to like the outdoors to, to be involved in this, uh, rather than just go on hikes, maybe, you know, get involved with a, with a SAR team training unit and, um, benefit yourself and as well, uh, those around you. Howard Paul, I want to thank you so much for giving all this terrific information and I wish you great success in all the future endeavors. Thanks so much. It's been my pleasure, sir. Thanks very much. You bet. Thanks for coming along on this week's adventures into the realms of nature and the environment as we journey through the backwoods and the byways to live in harmony with the great gift, this earth and all the mysteries it provides. Next week, we go deep into the minds of the wild creatures as we look at the emotional lives of animals with Dr. Mark Beckhoff. This is Sidney Wildsmith saying adios until we meet next Thursday or anytime on the archives when your voice of the earth returns on the Wild Side News.